But if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one. They are right here on the table. That's our gift to you. Um, you can download a Bible app on your phone. Open up to Matthew chapter 13. We have been going through the Gospel of Matthew for some time, and we are going to continue our series uh, this morning. And we're going to pick up uh, in Matthew chapter 13. And what I'm going to do, if I can see, here, I got an idea. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. This is what I do at home when I do my quiet time in the morning. Look at this. Boom, there we go. Okay, so stand with me because we are going to stand for the reading of God's word this morning, okay? So stand with me. Matthew chapter 13, I'm actually going to go back to verse 24 because verse 24 is going to help us understand. I'm just going to preach through the the nonsense and uh, just going to ask you uh, to bear with it because uh, in Christ alone our hope is found. Amen? Amen? Okay. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed hand, uh, heads, the wheat, uh, then the weeds appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, uh, didn't, you sow, uh, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them into bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest, garden, uh, largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. And he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed, in, uh, mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the dough. And Jesus spoke all these things in the crowd spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them that was not without using a parable, and so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. And they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your word that shapes us It is your word that forms us. It is your word that reveals to us who you are. 
It is your word that the church is built upon. And so as we come to your word this morning, would you refine us by your word? Would you take false words and remove them from our hearts? Would you take good words and fill our hearts with them? Would you take out of us that which does not belong to you and to your kingdom and replace it with that which does? Lord, would you give us ears to hear? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. You can grab a seat. So I'm not going to preach uh, verse uh, verses 24 through 30 because Matt did a wonderful job with that last week, but I did need to read it because I will be alluding back to it because it does tie into some of what I'm going to say this morning. Uh, so let me just kind of launch right into this because we got quite a bit of ground to cover this morning. So picking up right in verse 31, here's where Matthew starts. He says this, he being Jesus told them another parable. So if you've been following with us the last number of weeks, Matthew chapter 13 is an entire chapter which is recording for us parables which Jesus is speaking to people. Uh, what is a parable? A parable is a, a short story that conveys a big truth. Uh, another way of thinking of a parable is it's like a window, uh, a window that allows us to see something that we otherwise couldn't see. Uh, so in this case, the, the parables that Jesus are speaking, the, the window that he is opening for us, in a sense, is giving us the ability to see behind the veil, behind the curtain, to see things that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see, things about who God is, about what his kingdom is like, uh, things that, that, that are not plain to the, just to the human eye, to the, the natural eye. He's, he's giving us the ability to see with spiritual eyes. Uh, but not only are these parables a window into the character, nature, essence of God and his kingdom, they're also a window into our hearts. Uh, they're, they're a window into who we are. Uh, they're a window into uh, the way we view God, the way we view the kingdom. The parables are very much so, as you probably have already picked up from the text we read this morning, confrontational. They come, they come at us and they, they force us to make decisions. They, they undermine or, or they undercut the worldview that we have, our perception of the way God is, the kingdom is, and the way God works. And so Jesus is speaking these parables all through chapter 13. And, and what are these parables, parables about? Well, it's obvious, but I'll repeat it anyway. Verse 31, the second half, it says he told them another parable. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so Jesus is giving us parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, what's important for us to understand is how uh, the Gospels as a genre actually work. A lot of times, and I was already talking about this with somebody this morning, a lot of times when we think of the Gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, we, we think of them as biographies. And when we think of biography, we think of data. We think of information. We think of uh, giving us data about a person or a historical event, and it's linear in nature, and it just kind of spits out the facts of a person's life with maybe a little bit of commentary. Uh, and while the Gospels certainly are that, they certainly do give us commentary on the life of Jesus. They do give us data and facts about him. The way that 
that gospel as a genre works is, is very different than the way we understand biography. Uh, so the gospel writers all had a different audience. They all had a different, um, like, like an authorial intent, an intention with their writing in, ter- in terms of what they were trying to communicate or highlight about the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, so for example, in Matthew's gospel, he's very particular about the way he orders certain events. So if you've been following along with us, Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12, we have this situation where Jesus is uh, being bombarded with people who are asking questions about who he is, and he keeps coming back to them and asking them to make a decision. You have to make a decision. You have to decide who you say I am. And there's kind of this uh, dichotomy or division uh, that Matthew is making between two particular groups of people. There's the disciples, and then there's the crowds, the other people. The disciples, and this, is, this kind of comes to a culmination at the end of chapter 12, the last four verses, which I preached about three weeks ago. The disciples are called the family of Jesus. He identifies his disciples as those who do the will of the Father. Those are my mothers, my brothers, and my sisters. They're my family. But then there's this whole other group of people. They're not. They're not. And it's into that that Jesus comes, Matthew records chapter 13, where Jesus comes and now starts to give us parables about what the kingdom is like. And what Jesus is not doing and what Matthew's intention is not is for Jesus to give us facts or data about what the kingdom is like. He is definitely going to do that. We are going to learn and we have learned and we will continue to learn for the next couple of Sundays things about the way the kingdom works. Absolutely. But his primary objective, the thing that I, that I labored over this morning as I, as I prepared to preach and as I prayed for you and why I don't, this is going to go on the internet, but frankly don't give a crap about the lights or about any of the other stuff, is because the question that Jesus wants you to wrestle with in the deepest part of your being is what is your response to my kingdom? If everything this morning fails and one of you gets that question right, this morning was a smashing success. If everything goes off without a hitch and we sing songs and we hear a cute sermon and we go home with a little bit of a life coach pump up, but we haven't actually grappled with the realities of the kingdom, then this morning has been a colossal failure. Amen? I hope your answer to that was amen. What is your response to the kingdom? What is your response to Jesus' kingdom? Jesus is asking you, what is your response to my kingdom? And so Jesus is going to give us some more parables. I'll read the two parables that we're going to work through this morning uh, in their totality. So verse 31, he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like, and here's the parable, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds uh, come and perch in its branches. And then he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took 
and mixed into flour, about 60 pounds of flour, until it worked all throughout the dough. What is Jesus saying here with these parables about what the kingdom is like? He's saying this, it's really simple. The kingdom of heaven, it starts small, but it grows into something significant. Uh, Most of us, if we've been in church for any length of time, we have heard all of these parables. We've sung songs uh, about these parables. We know dances and hand actions and, you know, been on missions trips where we did, you know, flying birds and things like that, right? What do they call that? What is that? It's a thing, is it? Napoleon Dynamite? Anybody? No? No, okay. Anyway. Happy hands, is that it? Happy hands, I get that right? Somebody help a brother out here. Happy hands? Okay, thank you. One of you is with me. That's good. The jazz hands. There we go. There we go. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So the kingdom of heaven starts small, but it grows into something significant. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? He says we have a mustard seed, which here is described as the smallest, uh, the smallest of all the, the seeds. We know that's not actually the case. And some of us take that and run in a direction that the gospel writer never intended for us to run with it. It's it really, this is the smallest known seed at the time as Jesus was Proclaiming this parable, the seed is small between one and two millimeters in length. It gets planted, it takes root, and and out of this small, tiny seed comes this this tree or this large bush, might might even be a more appropriate translation, that's large enough that, that the birds can come and perch in its branches. And then we have an image here of yeast, full disclosure. I've never baked anything in my entire life. Is some is yeast even is that a baking thing? I don't even really know. Okay, there you go. Um I kill the meat, and uh, never mind. Yeast is a—it's a microorganism. It's small. It's tiny, right? And it, and it goes into this batch of dough, sixty pounds. Now I have what I have done is carried a bag of flour into my house. Sixty pounds of flour. That's if I. If I understand this correctly, the bag that my wife bring, brings home from Costco is a five-pound bag of flour. I think that's correct, which would mean uh, 60 pounds of flour is 12 of those bags. Like, that's a, that's a CrossFit workout, carrying those in. And what Jesus is saying is the yeast, this small microorganism, is actually, uh, it's small, but it's significant enough, it's powerful enough, it, it's got enough motion and movement behind it that it could, actually, it could actually completely take over that amount of dough. The kingdom of heaven starts small, but it grows into something big. Now, what I want to do here is pull out two observations out of these parables for us. The first one is this. If you are looking for the kingdom right now, it's probably going to be very hard to see. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying, right? If you're looking for the kingdom right now, it's probably going to be very hard to see. If you you go back to the verses I read earlier, he tells a parable about a field with wheat and weeds in it. Now he's telling a parable about a mustard seed. So you have this big field and you have this tiny seed. It's going to be hard to see the seed. In the second parable, he he tells a story or he, he gives us this image of all this dough. And you have this microorganism in all this dough. If you're looking for the dough, if you're you're looking for the the yeast, rather, this microorganism, you're going to have to look really, really hard to see it. You're going to have to strain. It's not going to be easy to see. And and I don't think it's a stretch for us to, to, to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Right? Like, if we, if we look out at our world, like, it's probably 
It's probably how we feel. Like, do you ever look out of the world and go, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? There's so much brokenness. There's so much injustice. There's so much, uh, you know, the, the list is endless, right? Mental health, struggle, strife, people who can barely make it. There's, there's all kinds of things that are happening in our world. And you look out there and you think to yourself, Where's God in the midst of all this? Where's the kingdom? I thought God, I thought Jesus was seated on the throne. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like he's actually lying down on the couch, taking a nap, not seated on the throne. Where is he? But that, that's not just the, like the, the meta reality. That's, that's our reality. That's the reality in this room. That's your reality. My guess is that's your reality if you start to really unpack your life, that there's this sense in which there's a lot of brokenness in this room. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of unmet expectations. There's a lot of tragedy. There's failed marriages. There's broken relationships with our kids. There's broken relationships with our parents and our siblings. There's issues of infertility. There's, there's issues of, of losing jobs. There's brokenness all over the place. I mean, I know enough people in this room to know the stories of the people in this room to know that the, the number of issues, the, the hurt, the anguish, the brokenness, like, it's a lot. And, and maybe you find yourself sitting here feeling like, All you can do is muster up enough inner fortitude to cry out, God, where are you? God, where is your kingdom? I thought you said, this hurts too much. If one more wave comes, I'm going to drown. I'm going to drown. Friends, when you cry out from that place, do you know what you're doing? You're straining. You're straining to see the mustard seed. You're straining to see the yeast. You're straining to see the kingdom of God. And some of you need to hear this morning Some of you need to hold on to this truth this morning that just because you can't see that God is doing something doesn't mean that it isn't happening. Right now, life circumstances feel hopeless, feel helpless. You feel like, I don't know what I'm going to do. God is not with me. God's kingdom is not at work in my life. And what Jesus wants you to know this morning is that he is working. While his kingdom may be small in your life, he is indeed working. I got an amen there. That's good. You are not alone. 
And what looks like weakness and insufficiency right now is actually going to grow, it's going to mature, it's going to manifest itself in such a way that it's actually going to be able to uproot and overtake every evil, every power, every principality in your life. And Jesus is asking you to cling to that promise. And we know this is the truth because this is the the reality that we see when we look directly into the center of the story of God. We see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. No, when we look at the cross, what do we see? We see just this. Uh, We see that what what looks like brokenness, what looks like failure is actually the means by which God rescues and redeems all of humanity. Think about this with me for a second. Uh, You know, when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, the culmination of it comes with his death on the cross. And the death on the cross of Jesus to the outside eye, to the person who's looking in from, from the outside, feeling like Jesus is somehow supposed to reign supreme and be victorious is going to be perceived as what? A failure. Uh, imagine you were one of the disciples and you're following Jesus and Jesus goes to the cross and he's buried in the tomb and you're, you're there the day after his death. What, what, what are you going to be feeling? God, what happened? Jesus, you you didn't do what you said you were going to do. They're they're straining to see the mustard seed. They're straining to see how God is actually at work. And then three days later, what happens? Jesus is raised from the dead. And and, and with the resurrection of Jesus, what what happens? Uh, The promise that all evil, all brokenness, all death, Satan, sin, hell, the wrath, everything, it's defeated. And what started looking like a failure actually results in the triumphant victory of God. And so what's Jesus' point here? Just because you can't see him at work doesn't mean he isn't at work. You may have to strain to see it but he is indeed there. Second observation from these two parables. According to Jesus, this small insignificant seed is going to take root to become significant beyond what we could imagine. This is exactly what Jesus says. If you have your Bibles, look at verse 32. So we have this mustard seed, smallest of all the seeds planted in a field. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, yet, right? As if the story doesn't end there. Right? My life is, is not going so well yet. Things aren't exactly the way I thought they were going to be yet. My kids are a disaster yet. My marriage is a disaster yet. My life is broken yet. Yet. When it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and it becomes a tree. Uh, when the Bible uses the word tree, often it's referring, to, uh, it's referring to a nation becoming an empire. In other words, it's going to become big, significant. It's going, to, it's going to have a lot of dominion. It's going to have a lot of authority. And then look at what Jesus says next. It becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Here we have an image of the nation's coming to perch in the branches that is the kingdom of God. In other words, this small seed that's in a big field that you have to strain to see, that you often question and wonder, is it even there? Look what it becomes. It becomes an empire. It becomes, it becomes this empire that has the, the nations coming to rest in it. 
This is exactly what we see when we look at the trajectory of the Christian story. When Jesus, his life comes to an end, he's sitting with roughly 120 disciples, a small group of people. And in a short amount of time, what happens is the church takes over most of the known world. In fact, you're sitting here hearing this, responding to this, actually is evidence that what Jesus is saying is true. Uh, Because at the time of the life and ministry of Jesus, he would have been preaching to an exclusively Jewish audience, and the Jewish people would have thought that the Messiah came exclusively, exclusively for them. And what Jesus is saying is, no, that's not the case. God has a bigger plan. The scope is beyond just you. And here you and I are sitting here listening to the gospel, responding to the gospel today. Two more birdies are going to come and sit in the branches of the kingdom of God as they get baptized after our gathering this morning. And that's evidence, that's fruit that the mustard seed is actually doing what Jesus said it was going to do, which is take root, bear good fruit, and grow. So while it starts small, while it starts insignificant, it doesn't stay there. It's good news, friends. It's really good news. If you're here, and you can't even see in front of you because the fog of the brokenness of your life is so thick, because the hurt is so real, the pain is so evident, you can actually feel it. This is an anchor for the soul. This is a promise that God is not done yet. It's not a promise, let's just be clear, that everything's going to work out. But it is a promise that just because you can't see what God is doing, it doesn't mean he's not doing something. And some of you need to reach out and grab onto that. Hold on to it. Uh, Right now, there's a conversation happening in the Canadian church, really in the West, but primarily in Europe and Canada, and I get the privilege of participating in some of these conversations in Canada specifically about what is the future of the church? Churches in Canada are massive decline. Uh, The dirty little secret on church planting is that while we see in church growth in general that they say roughly half of 1% of all church growth is actually new conversion growth. Right? And you know that because you're here and you weren't here when we started. And most of you, not all of you, but most of you, lots of you came from other churches, which is what I just, I call it sheep shuffling. Right? So we, ha- we haven't actually grown the, the church, the, the capital C church. We've just moved some sheep around. You, you know, we, we go where it's more comfortable, where it's more convenient, whatever, whatever the case is. Half of 1%. In the average year, three to 400 churches in Canada close their doors. They estimate by... Uh, By 2050, 9,000 churches in Canada will close their doors. There's currently roughly about 24,000 churches in Canada. Do the math. It's not good. It's bad news, right? On top of that, there's this growing, this increasing uh, secularization that is occurring in Canada where it's becoming less and less popular, you might say, to to be identified as like like an orthodox, conservative, evangelical Christian. Uh, And so there's this sense in which, you know, unless you're willing to conform to the morals of society, to the way that we believe, to the things that we hold on to, to our sex ethic, to our marriage ethic, uh, you know, you're going to face persecution. 
We face this all the time and, and it like happens all the time. My, my, my suspicion is, I, I don't claim to be a prophet, but my suspicion is in my lifetime, in my lifetime before I die, and, and maybe this is fear-mongering, I don't think it is, I'm not actually afraid, but it's just a reality that we're going to face is that churches will probably lose their charitable status unless they conform to certain uh, sex and gender ethics. It will become less and less popular to the degree that many of us will lose our job, possibly miss out on promotions, lest we uh, you know, recant some of what we hold on to or at least keep it extremely private. Parts of this book that we right now call preaching will soon shortly be called hate speech. It will not be in vogue to post sermons online for fear that others will listen. And it wouldn't even shock me if uh, companies, organizations like the Cineplex Odeon say, yeah, we don't really want your business anymore. It's kind of scary, isn't it? I'm scared. It's okay to be scared. I mean, realistically, if we can't give tax receipts, I'll probably lose my job. I'm a little bit scared. I'm concerned. But I'm not hopeless. If, if I dwell on that, if I hold on to that, if I let that become the thing that drives everything about my life, then yeah, that's not a good place to sit. But verse 32 says that regardless of who wins the election, regardless of what policies get put in place, regardless of whether it's our guy, we don't even have a guy for the record, or the other guy, there is no other guy, Jesus is our guy. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, well, we might have to strain to see the mustard seed. The kingdom of God is going to grow. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, my church will prevail. The gates of hell and some aggressive secularism, I added that, will not prevail against it. There's hope. There's hope. But the reality is this isn't just a hopeful truth for the church. This is also a hopeful truth for us. You see, we are the church. The mission is our lives. And for many of us, this is, I think, how we want things to go. We want to go from seed to tree. We want the seed to be planted and we want to become a tree. It's a one and done proposition. I ask Jesus into my heart, I get to go to heaven when I die, and it's just rainbows and puppy dog tails in between. But according to Jesus, that's not the way this goes. There's a planting, there's a watering, there's a pruning. There's a sowing. Then there's a reaping. And some of us want to skip the journey. Because it's hard. It's hard to suffer. It's hard to sacrifice. It's hard 
to go without. It's, it's hard to go through the brokenness of life. It's, it's hard to navigate through the weeds. It's not fun. What Jesus isn't saying is go look for the weeds, but what he's saying is don't miss what I'm doing in the midst of the weeds. See, there's this reality of the Christian life that it's actually pretty unimpressive. It's small degree of change after small degree of change after small degree of change after small degree of change. It's, as Eugene Peterson says, it's this long obedience in the same direction. It's this faithfulness in the midst of hardship. It's, it's calling out to God in the brokenness, in the dark nights of the soul. It's the choosing Jesus over and over and over and over again. That the kingdom of God moves in our lives from being just a small mustard seed to being a tree. A tree. Don't miss the beauty of what God wants to do in your life in the middle of the journey. And until the day that until the day that the harvest is reaped, until the day that we experience the fullness of all that God has for us, the kingdom of God is going to be by think about this friends, by God's design intended to appear small, buried, and insignificant. By design. See, see, when Jesus talks about the kingdom being a mustard seed, and we've got to wrap our minds around this here for a second, and he talks about it being small and insignificant and this little seed in this massive field that's filled with both weed and weeds. Here's what we have to, we have to grapple with is, this was his design. He's not responding to what did happen. This was his intended plan. Which leads to the obvious question, why? Why would God choose to work this way. Why does Jesus allow his field to be corrupted by the enemy and to be filled with weeds? Why is the kingdom of God one day going to permeate all of creation, but right now in this moment, why is it so hard to see? Well, look at the next set of verses. Verses 34 and 35. Here's what Matthew records. Jesus spoke all of these things, all of these parables to the crowd he spoke in parables, and he did not say anything to them that was without using a parable. Verse 35, so was fulfilled. If you're a Bible underliner, that's a word, right? You got to underline that guy. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things, I will, sorry, I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. What is Matthew saying here? Well, here he quotes from Psalm 72, verse 8. This, this last quotation here is a quote right out of Psalm 72. It's verse 8 exactly. What is Psalm 72? Psalm 72 is actually a parable, or it's a, a psalm, rather, written by a man named Asaph. But, but Asaph writes this parable about God's redemptive work. So Psalm 72, if you go read it, it's this long story of God's redemptive work in and through the nation and history of Israel. Now look at what, what Matthew says about Jesus so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophets. 
The psalmist is using parables like a window to give the people a picture into the very heart of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 13. He's using parables like a window to show us the way in which God works to bring about his redemption. In other words, if Psalm 72 are words of God's redemptive work, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive work. He's the culmination of God's redemptive work. If you go back to the beginning of the story of God, it starts with creation. It starts with a garden or a field, if you will, a perfect field, and God plants in our hearts his word, his seed, We're made in his image and likeness. We were designed to reflect his glory and grace. And the seed of his word was given to us, and he told us to cultivate the seed, the seed of his very word. And in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Another sower comes along. And he plants another seed, another word. And we received that word into our heart. We tried to cultivate both of these seeds at the same time in the same soil in the same field, both the seed of God and the seed of the evil one. I mean, that's exactly what we see in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable that Matt preached last week, right? You have both the wheat and the weeds in the same field. And as a result, what happens? We ruin the soil. We corrupted the soil that God intended for his seed, his word and his word and his seed alone. Now, now here's what's amazing about what Jesus is showing us here in this parable, this window that he's giving us. Right, let's let's take this garden analogy one step further. If you're the gardener and you plant a beautiful garden and you look out and the garden is riddled with weeds, what are you going to do? I don't have a garden. I never will. This is why. Because you're going to have to spend an otherwise wonderful Saturday on your knees in the backyard doing what? Pulling up weeds. And doing what with them? Throwing them away. First century, you would be throwing them into a pile to be burned. What does God do, friends? Does he pull up the weeds? No, he has every right to, but that's not what he does. Instead, what does does God do? He continues to sow more good seed. Instead of coming in and pulling up all the weeds, instead of coming uh, coming out and giving us exactly what we deserve, instead of preferring a a perfectly clean, uh, well-organized, cultivated field, he allows the weeds to remain and he continues to sow more and more and more and more good seed. He sows good seed through the nation of Israel. He sows good seed through the law and the prophets. And ultimately, he comes himself as the greatest fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the seed. John chapter 1, John records the coming of Jesus as the, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God himself plants the very seed that is the goodness of himself into the soil with the weeds. It's amazing. He actually humbles himself and enters into the garden. And instead of 
coming and saying, clean yourself up, make yourself right, get rid of the weeds, or I'm going to do it for you, he comes in and joins us. Now think about this with me for a second. This is good news to those of you who feel like your garden is full of weeds. Your life is a giant weed right now. Jesus actually knows what it looks like, feels like he's experienced living among the weeds. But I want to come back to the question that I'm trying to answer, which is why? Why? Why does God do it this way? Wait for it. Wait for it. This was worth getting up for. Getting your kids ready and coming here this morning. Why doesn't he just take care of the weeds? Because he loves us. He loves you. He's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting for you to receive the good seed and to cultivate the good seed and for the mustard seed to come into your heart and to take root and to become a tree. He's waiting for you to come to him. You see, if he'd come right away and cleared up all the weeds, this moment right here, right now does not happen because the weeds live right here in our hearts. It's easy to think that the weeds are out there, but the reality is the weeds are actually right here. It's God's kindness to you and to me that he allows the weeds to remain. See, God's love for us is the reason why things are so messy. So follow me here, friends. And this is a hard truth to wrap our brains around. But the brokenness, the mess, the hurt, the pain, the anguish, you can take those and you can use those against God to be frustrated with him. Or you can recognize that he has been holding back all this time and has allowed those things to happen so that we could know Jesus. It's a hard truth. But the reality is, God looks at our hearts, and what does he see? He sees a messy field but he loves us with such intensity that he's prepared to allow us to stay that way, that his seed would be planted in our hearts. And so the question for us family this morning is, which seed will we cultivate? Or maybe better put, whose seed will we cultivate in our hearts? I need to wind down, but... I have to get through this portion. Verse 36, Matthew goes on, listen to what he says next. He says, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, "Uh, explain to us the parable of the weeds. 
in the field. That's the parable Matt preached uh, two Sundays ago. So here, just to help you understand what's happening here, we have this transition point here, right, where Jesus has been preaching parables to the crowds. Now it says he comes into the house and he's speaking to the disciples. So this is like a Matthew chapter 12 where he's been speaking to the crowds and then he goes into the house to speak to his disciples, right? So there's this, like, you got to follow where Matthew's going here. There's this division that is taking place, this dichotomy between two groups of people. There's, there's the crowds and there's the disciples and then Jesus gives his explanation, it says, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom, the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom. Everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is that he's exchanging the bag of seed for the winnowing fork. A day is coming where he will no longer plant seed, where he will one day actually come and clean up the garden and the field will be beautiful again. This is our Revelation chapter 21 picture where there's no more tears, no more brokenness, no more death, no more sorrow, no more sadness, just Jesus. In other words, there's going to be a line that is drawn straight through humanity. Some to his kingdom and others to a place that is completely devoid of him. And here's what many of us are thinking. Really? How? Why? You you just talked about the relentless, patient love of God, and now this. How can that be? And I realize that there is a tension here that must be acknowledged. On one hand, we long for the weeds in the garden to be gone. We long for a day when brokenness brokenness is gone, where pain is gone, where there's no more hardship and where, where Jesus rules and reigns. And Jesus says, that day is coming. I will remove the weeds. I will. And don't miss the irony here. Don't miss it. We get angry with him about it. We long for the weeds to be gone, and when Jesus says, okay, I will give you exactly what you want, I will remove the weeds. I want a day, Jesus, where there's no more brokenness. Okay. You can have that day. Here's what it's going to look like, though. We hold it against him because we cannot tolerate the fact that he would actually do the very thing that we have been longing for him to do all along. So I want you to think about this with me for a second. I want you to answer this question honestly, but to do so will require an intense amount 
of introspection and humility that I'm not sure that the human heart has the capacity to wrestle with. But if the human heart is the soil where the weeds grow, then the real question, the deep question here isn't how could Jesus do this? How could God separate us like this? How could some of us be sent to hell? How could God do this? That's not the deep question. It isn't. The real question is how is it that he looks at any of us and sees good soil? How is it that he actually looks at the, the garden that is my heart and he doesn't see the weeds? but he sees something that is worth preserving. That's the scandal, friends. The scandal isn't that some of us will be, will be ripped up and thrown into the fire. That's only a scandal if you don't think your heart is a garden that is a mess. The scandal is how does he look at the mess that is my heart and somehow in his grace, compassion, and mercy, how does he save me? Which seed will you cultivate? I will close where Jesus closes. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let me pray for us. God, we need you. We need you. Spirit, would you enable us to hear? Would you give us the ability to hear these words, would you allow our hearts to be soil that can receive the seed of your word this morning? Lord, we thank you that you have relented and waited and have been so patient. But help us not to Help us not to treat your patience with contempt, but to sense the urgency of this moment that we might respond to your beckoning call to us to come. Friends, some of you need to respond. Some of you sit here week after week after week after week after week after week after week and you hear and you hear and you hear and you hear or at least you think you do, but you do not. You need to respond. You need to receive. You need to receive the seed that is the hope that Jesus died for you. He planted himself among the weeds for you. He actually became overtook by the weeds and he rose to new life. Stands alone.
Spirit, allow us to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.